You're listening to Reach Teach Talk with Nat Dane. I'm pleased to have Matthew Arnold here. He is a 25-year educational technologist at several schools from Chicago to Los Angeles. And Matthew, we're going to be having a chat today about technology in the classroom. And, you know, it's good timing to have this this podcast episode because there was an article I read just about a week ago in the Wall Street Journal about parents who are pushing back on their school, their kids' school districts and really with, with a greater voice now and a greater concern because what they are arguing is that there's been all this money spent on technology, technological hardware in the classroom and yet, what what are the um, the results? What's the return on this investment? And in fact, not only that, what what parents are seeing uh, and questioning is the positive, constructive use of technology and whether or not the technology is being used in positive construction in constructive ways. So, there's the skeptical side of technology. We've been in in about probably. Well, when I started teaching, it was 1993, and we had no internet, no email. And we had an office phone and, you know, I'd be lucky if I got the message that, you know, my parent called me and I need, I need to get back to her. Um, whereas today we've got email, we've got texting, we've got, you know, social media, we've got all the different angles of technology that have been pretty openly um, included in schools. I mean, it's very, very rare to come across a school that doesn't have a smart board or a one-to-one laptop program or um, whatnot in, in the classroom. So... There's a lot to unpack about technology and, you know, cause we can, and, and I'll have you start off kind of with um, the, the lens to unpack, to start unpacking it with, because there is the social emotional lens. There's the educational lens. There is the, um, the psychological lens. We know that there are disturbing reports um, in, in research reports about students uh, with higher levels of anxiety and depression today than 10 years ago. Then 2011 is when, as a year when uh, depression and mental health issues started spiking, particularly among girls, but also among boys. Um, and that was also the year, um, one of the earlier years of the iPhone being coming out. So, you know, all of this going from MySpace to Facebook to Snapchat to, you know, the black web, all of that stuff, um, influencing what really was meant to be a resource, this worldwide web, um, massive sharing of infinite ideas and collaboration um, and now it's kind of, uh, kind of untamed and in schools. So I say, I say all this to kind of set the foundation for, again, what could be an incredibly wide ranging conversation with one of the experts on education and technology. Um, and I would like to just actually leave an opening, leave room for an opening statement from, from you, Matthew, if that's all right. So I think that first, the first reference to that article, the parents are finally pushing back. <clears throat> you know, I've seen technology evolve from a full desktop environment where schools had closed networks on one campus where students couldn't access anything from home till then they started adding emails so students could email things back and forth and so much. And then, you know, everything from the desktop world to a laptop classroom to mobile laptop classrooms to tablet classrooms to wherever we are now. And I don't think that anyone has really stopped to evaluate, like, are we doing this right? They just, it's been sort of an arms race where it's all been about nouns and not verbs. And so, the, so much of the focus has been on how much hardware do we have? Do we have smart boards in the rooms? Do we have Macs or PCs? Are they laptops or, you know, 
Are they MacBook Airs or MacBook Pros? Because the schools in the district down the street or the other town have that. So are we keeping up with the Joneses? Is that what you mean by the arms race? Exactly. Yeah. Like, so we were, so, so that, that never, and then you see even on school tours, I used to give we, one school I was at, we had to present as part of the open houses and I'd have sixth graders coming in saying, um, do you guys have smart boards in every classroom? And I was like, well, actually we don't really think that's a necessary tool for learning. You know, I always would use Vanna White as the smart board reference. Cause she from seemed, Wheel of Fortune? From Wheel of Fortune, because she seems to be the most, she uses the most interactive board as a career. And other than that, I don't, I mean, you can be Vanna White or you can be the guy doing the CNN electoral map tallies. And they have an interactive smart board as well. But other than those two jobs, I'm not sure where that smart board technology really <laughs> comes to value. And I think teachers tend to have their styles that have evolved over the years. And putting everything into that one digital screen is not necessarily the most effective tool. It may be efficient. So if you're looking at things from like a profit margin, kind of time, space, paper, printing value kind of metric, it'll, it would seem on paper valuable. But as far as the deeper meaning and how the children are, are learning and evolving from that, it doesn't always, it's not always fully through, fully thought out. Um, and so, yeah, so like the nouns of technology are, you know, Apple, Mac, PC, tablet, smartphone, all that kind of stuff. And then the software conversation was a big deal at the beginning. It was like WordPerfect, Microsoft Works, Word. There were all these different formats that created a lot of conflict in the classroom. And then finally, when the cloud platforms really evolved with either Google Cloud or Microsoft Cloud, you can not, there's no more, there's no more um, format issues, which used to be the biggest deal. So now it's like, okay, so now we have a word processing program, which is the noun, but the verb with that has to be collaboration and creativity and critical thinking and communication. And we have to be looking at these verbs of how this learning evolves and not just try to th make it about the technology. Like when, we, when the iPad came out, they, that was like, so many people are like, oh, these, these are the future. And, and as I kept looking around, I'm like, where in business are iPads being used? And the most common place we see them now even is as cashiers. And so we're like, we had this great idea to give second graders iPads to start learning because they needed to be prepared for the future of business when those future jobs are maybe taking orders at Starbucks. And if we're, if we're looking at it from the, ver from the noun point of view, yes, they know how to use an iPad, but an iPad is intuitive to human behavior. You, you put an iPad in front of a, a one-year-old and they watch someone else do it where you take your finger and you point and you move, swipe things, they get it. It's like a doorknob. It's like drinking out of a cup. These two skills are not high, highly evolved skills that we have to like hone for 12 years in, in academic settings. The, the things that we do need to hone for all that time in academic settings are collaboration, communication, empathy critical thinking, like getting those skills into students' consciousness is way more important than any noun of technology. So how does technology help with developing skills and empathy and communication and collaboration? Well, I think they enable, like, you know, the, the, the two of us could collaborate on a document and you can be in London and I can be in LA and we can be working on the same document live. All that, all the technology is doing there is bridging the gap 
the bridging of gap, bridging the gap of time and space. You know, 20 years ago, we'd be FedExing manuscripts back and forth, and we'd be collaborating, but the time would take longer. Now, I can write something, email you, say, hey, I, I put something up, you can wake up in London, you can add to that document. And so that time gap has been bridged. And, and so we, we have way, the technology has enabled a lot of great things, but we have to, we have to continue to practice that evolution and learning. What about, so, so I was kind of being cheeky about how technology has helped with collaboration and empathy because, um, and you answered it actually in the most um, open way I could imagine because you, you are saying this is very positive because I, we can communicate from 8,000 miles away. But you and I could be sitting right now across at a desk from each other in a, in a seventh grade English classroom. And how would technology be helping us collaborate on an essay or on a research report? Well, I mean, you can, you can do that same thing. So essentially, it's, it, the two of us can be sitting next to each other or we can be 10,000 miles apart. And as long as we're sitting at that same document, the, the verb and the exercise that we're doing is collaboration. And whether we're in the same room, whether we're on the same device, whether we're doing it on a piece of paper, that is the important skill. That's why technology doesn't always open up these 21st century skills. We can be collaborating on a whiteboard. We can be collaborating on a big piece of paper. We can be collaborating just with a piece of clay and we pass it back and forth. And that exercise is what is the important skill for learning. And technology only is supplementary to that activity. I get, I get, uh, and the book that I've been working on now for years is kind of documenting this technological evolution. Um, I talk a lot about additive and transformative ideas. What's the difference between both? So like an additive technology would be, let's say for years you've been doing a crossword puzzle to help understand the Civil War vocabulary. So that's, that's, a, that's a, an ongoing worksheet that has value. It reinforces some memorization stuff that they have to know for these types of for these uh, disciplines. But then, you know, Apple will go and say, oh, well, once they have an iPad, you don't need, you don't need to do those photocopies anymore, which is great. And, you know, you can, you can then save 20 sheets of paper every time you're doing that Civil War lesson. But you have to add the cost of a $500 screen to go on that, plus the cost of the labor to deploy those screens plus the backup to manage the damage that happens. And we see that like 15 to 20% of screens will break. Um, and you get, you know, you give a fourth grader a piece of glass and you, you have them working on a three on a table that's three feet off the ground. Once in a while, those gravity screens happens. are going to fall onto the ground and glass breaks. We don't give the kids glass cups to drink out of. But then we give them screens that are made of glass and we think that's some type of... <laughs> 21st century skill that they're learning. I mean, I think it creates, that's, I think that's part of the anxiety that we're seeing in kids is not only are they, you know, when you have 10 year olds, 11 year olds walking around with $2,000 computers in their backpack. I mean, when I was 10 or 11, the most expensive thing in my backpack was like the number two pencil. The trapper keeper. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, the trapper keeper, which, yeah, that was like the most valuable thing in there. And now that trapper keeper is a thousand times more expensive than it was. So that anxiety is real. And like the, the, these are still real costs. Like parents still have pressure of like, don't lose the $2,000 thing in your bag. But, but these kids, and I don't think that's the only source of anxiety. I think it's just one of them. 
you know, it's kind of like this Alan Watts thing where like as the more technology you get, the more consequences come with it. So, so that was the additive definition, the definition of additive being technology used as an add-on essentially, right? Like, you know, you could, we could be collaborating on an essay together over, you know, a whiteboard or a piece of paper or whatever, but let's add technology or add an iPad and it makes us feel like we are keeping up with the Joneses. It makes us feel like we're 21st century learning when in actuality, it's not necessarily um, a given that it is enhancing the learning. Transformative. So then trans- what we want to focus on, right? Yeah. So then transformative would take that idea, that civil war vocabulary assignment and transform it into something bigger and better than it was. So what started out as a crossword puzzle, which is, you know, we see it in the New York Times every day and, and it doesn't doesn't change our lives, but it's part it's a part of our, our consciousness. We know how they work. We know how to get words in it. We know the, the different types of questions they have. So then a transformative assignment, if they have to have a tablet or a a laptop, perhaps they start creating like digital puppet shows where they're learning the skill of visual communication, meaning like this is how you design a character and these are the blue people and these are the gray people. And then you start to create, you know, whether it's a comic strip or a, a video or a film, these types of media projects become transformative. And when we look at the data on these kids, the 8 to 18-year-olds are consuming between 8 to 14 hours of screen time a day. That's consuming it. They're not producing much of it. And so we have to shift the model and, and like really look at the data that we do have and be like, look, we are training these kids to be consumers. And we need to train these kids to be producers. And so when we flip that, that consciousness, then all of a sudden we can start thinking differently. And instead of just giving them things like instead of it being a Civil War crossword puzzle that, you know, somebody gives us prefab kind of video content that the kids watch and then they then they, you know, we evaluate whether they could they comprehended it by, by using the crossword puzzle. We actually bring story into the conversation so that then they can start to empathize with the people that lived in the north or the south or whatever. And then they can start to really find valuable lessons to be learned other than just memorizing which side wore the blue, which side wore the gray. That's okay, but it's sort of factual, but we need things to be more that that's that transformative piece where they can start to really apply all different types of thinking. That's so well expressed. And I love the example of the civil war vocabulary, um, just as an example of what additive is, which is the idea of, you know, you can learn off flashcards just as well as you can learn off of an iPad, but you're adding the iPad in order to catch up with the gym. But also the but transformative is the idea of stepping the shoes of a civil war, you know, a female civil war soldier, you know, and, and right from her perspective about what it was like to serve for the union army, you know, and, and to, to really be story-based transformational base. And that's, that is how we want technology uh, to be utilized in the classroom. But so often, now you haven't said this outright, but would you agree with the statement that uh, one of the, um, you know, the cast 22s is that we are not, we don't, we are not seeing technology used in the classroom in a, as much of a transformative way as an additive way. Yeah, I think I think that seems to be the main use. And and even, you know, a school's value is being measured by the amount of gear they have. The and not of, the number of nouns. And not, yeah, what's your noun budget? <laughs> That's cool, but what's your verb budget? Because that seems to be the the miss. Schools will invest $500,000 on hardware and less than $500 on training. And when you look at that, 
that that to me is obvious. Like, okay, you're spending one percent on the training and all the money on how to use on, on not not how to use the stuff, just on getting the stuff. And then that that whole like that IT argument that you hear a lot. Oh, we just want to get it in their hands, and then we'll see what happens. No, if you have to wait and see what happens, you don't know what's going to happen or have an intention to what's going to happen. You're not going to be successful. And that's the thing we don't really have any programs to evaluate the success of a technology program. So the success of these programs is, okay, did every kid have a laptop? How many broke this year? Success. Hmm. No. The success has to be how did these devices transform the learning? And sometimes I think it's not, the device is more of a distraction than it is a, a beneficial benefic a beneficial addition to the learning. Beneficial uh, addition to the learning yes, experience. Yeah. yeah, learning experience. Uh, learning experience, which is never supposed to be passive. In fact, learning is challenging and it's an active process. And again, when you're getting back to the additive, the I'm going to passively consume information from technology, uh, that doesn't mean you're learning. And in fact, brain studies will show that students who are just learning passively, watching videos, watching, it doesn't go nearly, it doesn't fire up nearly the neurons in the right area of the brain as if you are collaborating face-to-face, -face, like what we're doing right here, over, let's, cre let's create a story about, you know, again, a female Civil War soldier or something, and really learn um, in that way and dig deep and, and fire up other neurons. So this is interesting, um, and this has been a really focused on the instructional part of technology and its pros and its cons. What I'd like to actually uh, move into is more of the emotional and the psychological um, angles of technology in the classroom, because you said earlier that the anxiety an eight-year-old has when carrying an iPad in her backpack or in her hands. I remember when I was a principal at an elementary school, when we just had iPads, I remember requiring when students were walking from classroom to classroom that they had to hold the iPads with, with two hands, you know? And I didn't think much about, like, I, I was saying that more for us, like for the school, because we know that, as you said, gravity happens, um, glass breaks. But I didn't really think, honestly, about how that messaging is res resonates with an eight-year-old and an eight-year-old who wants to do well who wants their teacher to like them who wants to be a good person um you know like all kids the idea of you have to hold this with two hands probably put a lot of pressure and anxiety on them and so launching from there what have you seen in your career here sweeping um, from the introduction really of email uh to and certainly internet research to now um, cell phones in the classroom and mobile devices and whatnot on, on an emotional way. And in my book, by the way, which Matthew is profiled in, in Time to Teach, Time to Reach, um, there's a fantastic example of journaling that Matthew talks about um, and how back in the day you would journal and then you compare it to what a student would be using today for journaling. So maybe we can start with that, the inner world of a, of a growing student and, uh, and that relationship with the external world um, and how technology has impacted that. So I think, you know, I like to talk about Best Buy a lot. If you go to the TV section at Best Buy, they got 12, or, you know, 40 TVs on, and maybe there's two or three shows playing. Technology is that. There's always other TVs playing and access to other TVs playing and other ways to interface with the screen itself. And so the level of distraction is like we've never seen before. And so you can, you know, you can fall down the rabbit hole of your own personal phone and three hours later you look up and you, you haven't done anything. You haven't accomplished anything. You haven't really learned much. But you've consumed a lot and you've inter interacted a lot. 
And without, you know, a whole lot of awareness, you're getting these little dopamine hits every single time you text somebody and or they text you. And you're like, oh, somebody wants to tell me something. And then you look at your phone and you're like, uh, is it going to be three o'clock or four o'clock? <laughs> okay, four o'clock. And then it comes in like 10 minutes later. Oh, someone said, is it going to be pizza or hot dogs? <laughs> pizza. And then you're constantly, like, in our minds, we're, that is the, the, emotionally, like, our bodies don't know the difference between getting excited for a text message or winning a slot machine or, you know, watching a sporting event. It's the same feeling is what you're saying. The, the dopamine, dopamine released is exciting and it's satisfying. And then we start craving that feeling. And so kids, when, when they're starting to be conditioned at that young, young level, to be getting that dopamine response, which is the equivalent of what drug addicts are craving. So there's a craving and then a satisf satisfaction and then craving and satisfaction. And then they constantly are chasing that. And then that's why they're comfortable sitting on their phone for three to four hours because all they're doing is just giving themselves a quick hit back and forth. I totally lost track of the original question, but the idea of getting those well first of all actually it's it's related because you're talking about the ping that comes with every text or whatnot every notification and how that is so distracting and, and interruptive but we are raising a generation where that has become the norm so the impact of that on focused we were talking about i was talking about journaling and i was talking about just you know because look you know we're working with kids and adolescents right and we are working in the most prime cherished time of their lives where they are their foundations are being set and at the same time, we're met, technology in, does impact the biology. The neural pathways uh, get re reconstructed through the use of technology. They're influenced by technology. The brain's plasticity is. So all of that to say about the impact of technology on one's growing emotional state of mind. And the journal example is one that makes me think about that and also what you just shared about the, inter the constant interruption of the dopamine hit. Yeah, so I think in your book, you talk about my college life where I had, um, you know, those composition books, which I thought were great because the binding, it, it, the pages were bound. They couldn't, they didn't have perforations, so you weren't losing it. And I, you know, traveled through Europe. I lived for a good eight years of my life, pretty much writing every single day, nonstop. And so like if I was in between classes, I'd go sit in the student union, I'd get lunch, and then I'd open up my book and write a page or two. Today, if I was, it doesn't matter. Any student on a college campus today has that time off. They're opening their laptop, they're checking their email, they're on Facebook, they're doing social things, or they're on their phone doing the exact same thing. But the benefit that I have, and, and you know, a lot of what those, those books I now call the last days of analog, because like that experience will never happen again, period. There's never going to be a student who's going to be able to sit and observe the world the way I did because either they're going to be distracted by their own device or they're going to be observing other people who are entirely distracted. And so there's not even an authentic observational opportunity today. Whereas before, you know, when somebody was anxious, you could see it and you could see why. But today, everyone just retreats on their phone and they hide their real state of mind. Because if they're like, if they're anxious, or, oh, oh, I'm just, oh, I was just trying to order a pizza. I, I can't figure out how to do pepperoni. <laughs> and it's like, that's not a real thing, but that's our, how we're revealing ourselves to the world. We're creating these false selves. And that, you know, there's a whole chapter I talk about lies because kids are lying about their age to even join social media. And they're lying about what they look like to be more attractive. 
They're using software to enhance their own look, which then, you know, imagine that if you have this super handsome online ex existence and then people see you in real life, it's like such a disappointment. And so they're setting themselves up for pure disappointment because who they want to be is not who they are. And online, you can display who you want to be and, and it can be any version of that. And so like this generation just isn't, doesn't have the time to reflect on who they are because this is the time where they're, they are figuring out who they are. But what's happening with social media is kids are presenting a version of themselves and then they're letting the audience dictate who they are. They're like, oh my God, they really liked when I wore that bow. So I'm going to keep wearing that bow and keep doing pictures in that bow and keep using this filter. And, and like, that's the inventory that's going through, especially young girls. That's the stuff that's going through their minds because they're like, they, they are quantifying how successful they are. And then like, you know, I talk a lot with my film students about, you know, how do you evaluate things? And when you have, um, we talk about quality versus quantity. And so you show them a video on YouTube. What's the first question they ask afterwards? How many likes? How many views does that have? Yep. How many likes does that have? So they want to know the quantification of that thing so they can know if they can connect with it. It's like peer pressure on a global scale. Like if everyone's doing it, then I know it's okay. But if everyone's not doing it, I'm suspicious. But what we have to do is get to them and let them start to think critically both about who they are and doing that self-reflection on top of, you know, who is everybody else and who, well, who are they trying to be as well? Because these, this whole generation just missed the self-awareness part of the part of the classroom, which we never really had structurally. It was just sort of what happened organically. But now, you know, kids can be like, oh, I think I'm an introvert. And then you're going, oh, I just took a quiz. Am I an introvert? It says yes. And so what you're, what you're trying to get me to go out and I don't want to go out because I'm an introvert. See? Yep. And it's not because they're depressed. It's because they're an introvert. And so like everyone is becoming so self-diagnosing but not self-aware. So it's like they want to have these identities. Gender identities are becoming huge things. Sexual identities. So everyone is hyper, hyper um, categorizing themselves, which is getting in the way of their ability to really figure out who they are. There's a nuance to really figuring out who you are and to, to a true self-definition. It's a nuance. And it sounds like when, you, when you've just been talking about this identity, it, the external identity, it sounds like they're figuring out which armor to wear, right, or which veneers to uh, present themselves in that's based on – it's fascinating how you said earlier about – it's about quantitative – they're using quantitative metrics, Matt, to, uh, to, 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 to gauge something that's interpersonal, something that is actually extremely qualitative and human. And there's a disconnect with that for sure. So if you were to give any advice to schools or if you were to build a school today, right? Let's say, let's have this question. If you were to build a school today as a haven, an optimal haven for, you know, kids and adolescents finding themselves so that when they're 18, they can leave to wherever, but have a, a solid sense of self-knowledge. How would you envision the school's approach to technology to be? So I, I like to call it access not excess. And I think it's the school's responsibility to set that tone. And excess is, I think, where we currently are, where it's just kind of like pepper every part of campus and every lesson with some type of technology where it doesn't have value. It's just quantity. But when we really break that down, if excess is quantity and access is quality, 
we have to look at act, helping these kids access that part of themselves so that they're doing that self-discovery, that they're using the tools and reinforcing all the skills that they're going to need, but not with an excessive amount of anything on top of it. And so I, first and foremost, phones should be banned from campuses. Like, like the country of France has banned phones from schools. There's no year. logical argument for phones to be in the hands, especially of high school kids. And yet that's where it seems to be trending. Middle schools can get away with no phones. High schools, for some reason, are fighting it. And the kids are running the argument there. When they don't really have the perspective of what those devices are going to do to them, as well as, you know, people that have been in education for 20 years. And they've seen that, yeah, education worked when we were in school. Why is it not working now? Hmm. So the phones are, there's just no need. You know, the, the school rules should be, no, just they have to be off when you're on campus. And, and let me just, is, is this because when you're on a phone, you're actually focused outward, not inward, like out of the school community, most likely? Um, or even if you were, if, if I were talking to you, texting to you, and you were just down the hallway from me, there's still something antisocial about that behavior. Is that, is that kind of behind this idea of not having cell phones in schools? Yeah. And so one of the top, one of the titles that I've been bouncing around for the book is Be Here, Not There. And a lot of it is kind of based on Ram Dass's book, Be Here Now, which was one of the kind of first books that brought Eastern ideology to the West and said, you know, be here now or, you know, be present, be, you know, present in your mind, present in your body, present in your space. The second you open up a phone, there's something about the mobility of the phone that makes it even more craveable to be elsewhere. It's like this little time machine that doesn't really physically take you anywhere. But in your mind, you can be taken on the journey. You can escape any reality just by typing something into the search. And, you know, by teaching kids to be present, that's where then they're allowed to learn. And then that learning is where the connections start to happen in the brain. And then the brain starts to grow. When we don't have that space and there's a constant short-term attention span, they're never going to learn much because their brains aren't given the opportunity to configure itself. It's like trying to install software and canceling, canceling it constantly when it's halfway through. Hmm. It's never going to install. And it's going to continue to give you errors and whatever. So like, yeah, we just have to get more aware. And like, so phones are not, should not be there. Space should be really thought through spaces. And this is something that, you know, when I was teaching at Crossroads, the founder of Crossroads was a huge proponent of not sitting in rows. And ironically, he came from Harvard school, which is where the, our roots are. And Harvard was a very traditional school and it was kind of based in this very parochial model where like the preacher or the teacher stood in front, all the students sat in rows and they obeyed their daily schedule based on bells, which were just like the industry, uh, just like the factory. You'd have the bell to go in, bell to go out. And, and then they broke that out and then they started sitting in circles. That changes the dynamic. Because then kids aren't just sort of looking at the back of some other kid's head, but then they're forced to make eye contact. So, like, the space needs to be thought out. Like, if you're really going to create an innovative learning space, it's not just throw technology at them. It is create spaces. And then those spaces also have to have heavy-duty technology spaces, which are like computer labs or maker spaces, 
Then they have to have like little light computer labs, which are mobile, and that's where they can do their word processing and that kind of stuff. And then there needs to be space that has none of that. And, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, I have a yoga and meditation retreat business. Tell me about that. So it's called The Reboot. It's called, it's a digital detox retreat business. So people come in and whether it's an evening retreat, a full day retreat, or a multi-day retreat, they check in their device. That's the first step. Then they spend the entire retreat reflecting on why they need it, why they want it, why they don't have it, why they don't want it. We give them some of the physical remedies to technology, and then we give it back. And then they have this like whole different experience, different relationship with the device. And when you connect on a human level and like hearts are connecting versus the heart on Instagram, mm -hmm. it changes your consciousness. And so I just think we need a lot more of that and a lot less, a lot more here and a lot less there. Matt, that's wonderful. And I, I hope you're able to build that school someday because we all need that present, that sense of presence and that intentional use of technology, the, the transformative use of technology, not the additive use of it. And my last question actually for you is actually, if you could just share, you've been an educational technologist for 20 years plus. What's your journey been like? I mean, you know, start at the beginning. Like what, what, did you, what were you really a proponent of? What were you really excited about back in like the early 2000s and then or late 19, late you know, 20th century? And how has that evolved to where you are today? Because you are fascinating. I mean, this is, you know, you're somebody who's, Got, who's so incredibly well-versed in technology and it's in its use in education and teaching and learning and just growth. Yet you're also skeptical. And this conversation has been about the, the skepticism that you have and just the questions that you have. So how those questions arose, what your journey has been, and we'll just let you go and conclude from there. So I gave a talk in 2008, I believe, um, about the history of technology and where it, what it, how that informs where we are today. And when you Walk backwards from 2008, which is sort of the the date when the iPhone came out. And the iPhone was the precursor to the iPad. And so all of that stuff, it was the first time we had one device that could do all of these things, which is shoot video, watch video, edit video, write, read, compute, and, you know, all of the technology that we had in schools was one of those things was a different device. We had calculators, we had video cameras, we had video editors, we had microphones, we had all of these things, except they were all separate pieces of technology. Then all of that got squeezed into that one thing. And that's the moment, it's ironic that it is a, was a slate or a, it was a, a piece of glass because that's, on the timeline, that's what I call the plateau. And so that start, it hit in 2008, was the time that we had HD video in our hand and we could share it, shoot it, read it, watch it, do all of those things with that one device. And we treated it like it was a Swiss army knife. And schools were like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. We have a, this device can do everything. But today, if you're gonna open a restaurant, you're not gonna give your chefs Swiss army knives because it has a knife and a fork on it. No, you're gonna give them a proper kitchen knife, which is gonna do that job perfectly well. And so the idea that we have to have one device that does all the things is very short-sighted because like you need a good knife to make a good sandwich. And yeah, I can do it with a Swiss army knife. And when I go camping, I do it and I hate it every time. And so don't tell me that I have to use that one device because we're squeezing everything in one. 
And so what I've observed through that time, like before that, it was kind of like people were really figuring it out. And, and the big thing has always been a prominent theme is fear. Fear has always been the driver, whether it's politically, whether it's worrying about not being as sophisticated as that other school. So we have to make sure that we have top of the line everything. And like, what is that fear response? Like, what, who cares if you have Macs on one school and Chromebooks at the other? They're all using Google Docs. It's like it, it, one has a $1,200 uh, interface and the other one has a $200 interface. So who's really smarter there? You know, some are driven by the fear of being seen as that inadequate. The fear of not having a Cadillac in your driveway because the guy, you know, it's like that keeping up with the Joneses thing is real and fear is the driver. And so schools have always been driven by fear. And so 2008 until about 2012, that's like kind of the early days of social media. Facebook was born in about 2006. YouTube was born in 2004. When was MySpace born? Uh, like 2004. But it died soon after that too. Facebook. But what happened is like we didn't pay attention. And, and it, we see the effects it's already had on our elections because nobody was paying attention. And social media has just grown like this parasite. And we've all fueled it. We've given them all the data they need to know. They know that I love to look at these kind of videos and I hate to look at these kind of videos and I will engage with these kind of videos. And so that whole thing has just been this massive manipulation of humanity by understanding our most primitive data, data sources. Um, and so 2008 was sort of that plateau. And then 2014 to 16 is when things started to go bad. And that is the time when everything hit ahead. Every kid had, every, students were really starting to have phones. And then you work earlier than that, kids were starting to have social networks. But it was that time when kids had phones and social networks. Because what kids, what phones do is they immediately give you this whole private life. You need your thumbprint to access your data. I mean, remember the days when, you know, you'd have a diary and you'd have a key and a lock and you felt like that was somehow private, but your mom somehow figured out how to do it and she could check in on what's going on. It's called a paperclip. <laughs> They're not doing that with technology. They're just being allowed to run free and just kind of have these completely rabbit hole lives that they're not, their parents are not a part of. The parents aren't there to be supportive of it. And so, so my journey has gone all the way through until it was like 2011 and 12 when Apple and all these other companies were really getting aggressive marketing one-to-one -one laptop and one-to-one -one iPad programs. They called it one-to-one. -one. They said, hey, this is every one kid needs one device. Whether the school needs to buy them or they buy them themselves, you have to. Everyone's doing it. And now schools are basically, I mean, LAUSD spent a billion dollars on that bad idea. And they realized it was like there was a lot of corporate forces that made it really corrupt. And so um, we just have to be really independent in the way that we program our learning for kids and like be experiential and quit thinking that we have to keep up with the school down the street because none of these schools are doing it right. And like really the goal is to create happy humans, happy humans who can think critically and contribute positively to the world. And have a lot of empathy. And if the school's not designed that and technology that use of technology is not taking advantage of that or encouraging that, we're failing. If we we can see like what's happening in the world, the world is not happy. There are 
shootings are happening all the time because people are starting to become indoctrinated negatively online because there's something satisfying about that negativity. They want to have a, they want to mutually hate the same thing. And when people all hate the same thing, they start to connect. Yeah, they start feeling this false sense of, of belonging. And so I think schools have to become, they, they have to set goals and you can't measure this stuff. That's the problem. You can't say, oh, our kids got, you know, average 1,400 or more on the empathy SATs. There is nothing like that. You have to just continually create opportunities for your kids to be of service to the world. Let technology be the, the, bear, the guard there. Like right now, the Bahamas are totally destroyed. There are ways that kids using Google, 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 Google Maps and other GPS data that they can start to contribute and help organize those people on the ground. That would be a huge opportunity to teach citizenship, digital citizenship, and a way to communicate effectively with the world and create positive change. Instead, our kids are like, you know, hey, I can't believe so-and-so is going to be on campus. We need to protest that. And, and, and they're starting to squash free speech. They're starting to avoid tough conversations instead of, in, instead of going face forward to bad or uncomfortable conversations. And so we just need to encourage all of this sort of happiness. And, and I really think that the happiest that I've experienced, the happiest I've seen people experience, especially in workshop environments, is just when humans connect. And schools just need to have more manufactured opportunities for just connection, whether it's just having a silent circle, just, you know, doing intimacy workshops, letting kids feel comfortable being vulnerable and not creating these fake versions of themselves that they keep putting forward because they can and they can actually quantify the success of it. Like a young girl can can quantify how much more engagement she gets when she's in a bathing suit in a photo versus when she's in her school uniform. And so she's going to start craving the response she gets from that bathing suit without the awareness of who she's appealing to. Like 300 people like you in a bathing suit and you're 16? If that was in real life, she'd be freaked out. Absolutely. In social media, she feels like she needs 500. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of like, a lot of these, a lot of where we've hap- where we've landed, is is freaking me out. And I, you know, in two thousand eight, I thought technology was going to save the world. And the first cha- the first sentence of the book, which it started at that point, was this should be the last book written about education, because I thought from that point forward, all books would be digital. <laughs> and now most most digital books are just additive books so they take the print book and they make it a digital book and then they distribute it on a screen versus paper so if it's going to truly be an ebook it has to be interactive and to, for it to be transformative but now i know that personally i read better on books the screen brings too many distractions the science backs up the fact that reading off paper and being able to annotate with a pen um, if you're so inclined helps you to retain a lot better than reading off of a screen. There's so much that is different about the organic versus the um, technological, I guess. Um, But this conversation, I'm going to have to wrap it up for the sake of the podcast length, but this conversation has been transformative in so many ways, Matt. I mean, this is, and I'd love to have you back at some point to talk about a subtopic from this conversation, because we need to continually press on this, that schools are 
They can be um, prisons or havens, and they can be crazy and chaotic and driven by the id and the dopamine rushes and just kind of funnel that class five rapid kind of rush of a hallway, or they can provide spaces for reflection and spaces for connection, empathy, empathy growth, understanding. You get the Trump supporter and you get the, the far-leaning socialist Democrat to be able to talk with each other. It's a safe space to grow. And we're not seeing enough of that because everything that you've been talking about is to the point where it's too easy to obfuscate. It's too easy to find your tribe. It's too easy to, and we're de these are developing minds that we're working with in schools. So I'm hoping that there are school leaders who have been listening to this and watching this podcast. I'm hoping there are teachers who feel a sense of, of connection to your message. And I hope that there are parents who are listening to this as well and finding a sense of understanding and a sense of hope actually, because wow, what Matthew you know is saying here I've been thinking for years, and you're giving voice, I think, to it, just getting back to the Wall Street Journal article, to what parents, teachers have been really feeling, but maybe not been able to have the outlet to uh, share through words. So I'm going to leave you with, I'm going to leave you with the last, the last point before we wrap it up. Well, that, that totally just made me think of an exercise. Like we always think about how do we teach empathy? I'm wondering if you were to model separation, what would that look like? If you had one student who's a Trump supporter, one student who's not, and you model the way that interaction is happening globally, they would be sitting next to each other on screens, not talking to each other and hating each other online. And if we take that as the model and then we flip it and we say, how do we teach the opposite? The answer starts with move the screen out of the set. Let the screen not be the wall dividing us. Let them look in the eye and tell me why you hate me. Then all of a sudden, I don't hate you. We're we're the same. You're you're a real person. Whoa, you're warm like me. Skin. Exactly. And so that is simply that's the simplest, simplest explanation of what we need to be doing more of. More here, less there. Thank you, Matthew Arnold, educational director of educational technology for over two decades, has witnessed an incredible run and. I'm so glad there are voices like you out there for the future as we continue to wrestle with and integrate technology in meaningful ways. Thank you.